Welcome back to the All Outdoors Photography Podcast, where we share experiences out in the field and educate others through landscapes, wildlife, macro, and more with photographers from around the world. And today we have Tony Gazo on the show. He's an avid birder, outdoorsman, and naturalist with the Lake Metro Parks near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so welcome, Tony. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and get the proverbial uh, elephant out in the room out of the way now. What is your favorite bird and why? Um, well, let's see. Probably the grackle. Um because I love watching them like just dig around in the in the ground and like the way they throw the leaves around and they just they they have they kind of just have this attitude and they look like little dinosaurs roaming around. Uh, they're also just really cool looking with their iridescent feathers. Um, I tend to like birds that kind of have that sort of attitude, the sort of uh, annoying aggressive birds. <laughs> And um, it's also the first bird I remember as a kid, like being like, what is that? I'm going to look that up. Yeah, it's definitely a one that I feel like is a lot more underappreciated because a lot of people like at a glance would just be like, that's just a plain black bird. They might even mistake it for maybe like a crow or something. Um, but, yeah. like, but definitely, yeah, that yellow eye ring and just the, the iridescent like head and feathers. And yeah, they're, they really are beautiful and they do they do have an attitude, <laughs> at least in most photos I've seen. They do. And, and it's, it's cool too, because I, I lived in New York city for a number of years. I worked in central park for a while and they have a different subspecies out there that are much more of a sort of purplish color on the body. And out here in Ohio, they're more of a bronze color. So uh, just that slight difference in color variations also, also pretty cool yeah. with a lot of birds. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of species of grackle if I'm correct, like a lot like people kind of overlook them but there's different varieties everywhere pretty much there is yeah there's some of them like out west there's like great tailed grackles which are just huge they have these gigantic tails and um they're just really cool looking yeah do you, yeah, it's awesome. do you think the different like plumage or pigmentations from their diet depending on the region they're in um i don't know what causes the, the variation in color um I don't know. That's a good good question. I I would tend to say it's probably not their diet. Um, from what I have researched, I feel like it's mostly the color red that's depended by diet because the red is formed through different things in in the diet um, and how they react to certain um, pigments and chemicals in um, a bird's body. So. Um, I would say mostly the red birds, um, it would be more of the, uh, a diet situation. Interesting. Yeah. Is there like a habitat for the grackle or are they so widespread that they're pretty much everywhere? They're pretty much everywhere. I don't see them deep in forests very often. I think they tend to stay in more open mm -hmm. or semi-open areas. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably one of the most knowledgeable grackle people in the world. I mean, at this point, you're <laughs> you're kind of known for that on Instagram. I, I've been following you for quite a bit. I, I always see your grackle photos, and I really enjoy them. So, yeah, keep it up. Yeah, I just posted one today, actually. I took it McGee Marsh a few weeks ago. Oh, awesome. And yeah. I was I was like, I was like, oh, look, there's a grackle. I was with a friend of mine, 
and this woman was nearby us and she kind of gave me a look like, what are you looking at grackles for? You're at McGee Marsh. <laughs> and I was like, well, I should come back next year with a shirt that just said I came to McGee Marsh to look at grackles. Yeah, just the grackles, <laughs> nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good segue. Uh, how was your trip to Vegas week there? It was fun. You know, I, I had been out there a few times. Um, that was the first time I've gone during big week and the first time I've gone really during peak migration, um, just because of work schedules and stuff. And, you know, I'm only about two hours away, so it's easier for me to just sort of at the drop of a hat say, Hey, I'm going to go out to McGee. Um, so I go out there in the summer sometimes or in fall. Fall's still pretty good. It's not like, you know, how spring is, but uh, it was fun. I saw a lot of cool things. Um, I think I totaled 88 birds that day, um, oh, which is pretty cool. good for one day. That's between uh, McGee and Howard Marsh in total, but uh, it was good. I saw some cool birds, some birds I hadn't seen yet this year. Um, no life birds at McGee, unfortunately, but um, I got... Uh... Oh, actually, I did get one. I got the Kirtland's Warbler out there. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. That's that's quite the one to see. It's probably one yeah. of the best finds you can get. Yeah, out there. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, what what kind of? So, are, are you kind of going after um, those rare species like the Kirtland's warbler? Like, are you are you always in the pursuit of lifers, or are you just kind of in it to kind of see things again year to year? I, I'm not a big competitive birder there's a lot of people especially out here in lake county that are very competitive birders that are like i gotta get everything i can for the county and um i don't really keep a county list um i compete with myself every year like i try to do better every year maybe get more birds this year than i got last year or or i'll be like hey let me see how many birds I can get in this one day and try to break like a single day record. But I don't, I don't chase a lot of rare birds. Um, mostly because in, when I was first starting birding, I would, and I never saw anything. <laughs> so I was kind of like, well, I'm not going to continue like going hours out of my way to not see anything. And it, made me start to not really enjoy it as much because I, I like just going and observing nature and the birds themselves. And when I get upset that I don't see a bird that kind of ruins that enjoyment of, of nature for me. And it, I have to sort of stop and take a step back because I, I don't want that. You know what I mean? I don't want to, not enjoy what I'm doing. So I am not very competitive when I don't chase birds very much, but like with the Kirtland's warbler, I know that they're pretty reliable out there. So I knew there was a good chance of seeing it. So I was going to definitely try to see it while I was out there, but I don't know. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's just like the approach that you take and it's like, there's no real like right or wrong with it. It's just kind of like some people do like that more, I guess, competitive aspect of birding or just trying to push themselves to chase birds and get the biggest life count. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with totally just going out and seeing what may be out there at that particular moment too. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, you know, nothing wrong with, with either way. It's just for me, 
when it becomes more competitive and it becomes more about checking something off my list, it's for me less enjoyable. But for other people, it's more enjoyable. More power to them. Yeah. And I don't know if you found this, but it's almost more fulfilling when you you find a bird you've already seen, maybe not too much, but you, you see a new behavior with that bird, uh, something you never knew they, they did that's maybe not as common, something like that. I, I get almost just as much enjoyment. Yeah, you know, I had something kind of like that last year. So I, I mentioned that I used to work in Central Park, and there was this really good bird or a naturalist that um, lives in New York City. And uh, I would run into him in the park very often, and we would, you know, I would just bird with him while I was working because my job at the time was basically to roam around the park and be a, a roaming information center. So I always had my binoculars on me, and I would run into him, and he'd be like, hey, let me show you this, let me show you that. And we found this worm eating warbler and he was like, you know, it's very interesting. They very often will be attracted to dead leaves and will eat insects off dead leaves. And I had not known that before. And then fast forward to last summer, last May, I guess, um, I went out to New York to, I still have a couple friends out there and I decided, well, Central Park's a really good birding spot in May. I'm going to go there because I know that they have worm eating warblers and prairie warblers, which don't quite make it up to um, the northernmost part of Ohio. So I don't see them very often anymore. And I was looking for a worm eating warbler. And I remembered that and I looked over, I found some dead leaves. And sure enough, there was a worm eating warbler just sitting on those dead, leaf, those dead leaves eaten away. Oh, wow. That cool. is awesome. Yeah. That's that What a cool job too, to have. I mean, like that's, that's awesome. I mean, probably the, just the lists, maybe not lifeless, but just kind of the, the New York list you would rack up after days and days of working. I mean, that's that's awesome. You want to yeah, talk a little bit I, more about that? I still like, like I said, I, I'm not a big competitive birder. I have um, former colleagues that are always on the eBird, like top 100s, looking at where their ranking is. I don't really care where my ranking is, but um, just out of curiosity, not that long ago, I looked at. Um, some of the hot spots for the northern end of Central Park, because I've mostly worked and birded in the northern end of the park, and I'm still in like the top ten on a number of those lists, and I haven't lived there in since 2018. So yeah, I did. Awesome. I did rack up quite the Central Park list for sure. That's awesome. What was the what you say was like the the most surprising bird that you that showed up in Central Park that you were able to see? Uh there were a few that I missed um, around here in Ohio there's purple martins everywhere in New York <laughs> City proper you very rarely see one and um, I did have a couple of purple martins one time uh, some vespers uh, a vesper sparrow showed up once that was pretty cool to see um, American pipit showed up once which is pretty cool to see and I didn't at that point I didn't I had just started birding and I was actually on a bird walk um, that was led by New York City Audubon. And I was like, what's that weird looking bird? It's just walking. It's not hopping around. And the guide was like, oh, that's a pippin. That's a really good bird for Central Park. Oh, I got to tweet this out right away. So that was that was. Oh, cool. that's awesome. That's really cool. There's a couple I missed in Central Park that my only Kentucky warbler is in Central Park, but I never saw it. I only heard it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What are, what are maybe like some of the year-round residents there at Central Park? 
Um, a lot of the year-round residents are similar to the ones we have in Ohio. Um, there's, I don't know, I can't think of any really year-round residents that are different, but they do have some winter residents that are different. Um, when I moved here to Ohio, I was kind of surprised that I didn't see that many yellow-bellied sapsuckers, and they're all over Central Park in the winter. Uh, same with fox sparrows. I don't see very many fox sparrows out here, but you get plenty of them in Central Park in the wintertime. Um, but New York also gets, because it's on the ocean, so you can get uh, go out to the to the coast and find great cormorants and gannets and you know all sorts of scoters and long-tailed ducks and stuff like that, which is always pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah, Ohio's kind of hit or miss, I'd say, with those two uh, species you mentioned, the sapsucker and the fox sparrow. Seems like they're definitely, I mean, it's migration, but like they still just don't really seem to come around. Like to, yeah, I'm and, lucky if I see one a year of both of them. Right. Yeah, same here. It's like, <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever seen a fox sparrow, but sapsucker, it's like, I've probably seen one once ever. It's just kind of like, they're just kind of around, but you don't, I don't know. I don't have much luck with them, but. Yeah. I, I, I can point out a million trees with sapsucker holes on them, but I very rarely see the sapsucker. <laughs> oh, I was just going to mention the only time I've ever seen him is like, I, I go to Michigan in the summer and like way in the back country up there, like in deep forests. Like I feel like they're fairly elusive in our part of the country at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's funny how just a couple hundred miles can change all that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's good that like, I, I would say the mark of like experienced birder is like you can tell those field markings that are like stuff that like is evidence of a bird, like you said with the tree and the sapsucker. So like mm -hmm. that, that's that's like really important info to learn to I guess improve your birding experience too. Yeah, stuff like that, or even just what species tree you're looking at. Um, there's a lot of birders, especially that start out. They're like, oh no, there's a bird in that tree. I don't know what kind of tree that is. Um, and I was like that one time, but you start to learn the types of trees that can really help like you know what a tulip tree is then you know that the uh the flowers attract a lot of birds in the springtime so you know that hey i know where there's a bunch of tulip trees there might be a bunch of birds over there mm -hmm. or if you're looking for like a red-rusted nuthatch or something and you know that they like conifer trees and you can kind of go to where there's conifer trees Right. Makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Or like a yellow-throated warbler, they prefer the sycamores. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you say is the best way to, like, improve that if, like, someone's starting out with birding? Do they just, like, direct observation? Or do, like, they bury their face in a field guide until they learn it? Like, what was the best technique you'd say for that? Hmm. Or maybe I don't know. I mean, a combination of both, even. Yeah, I think maybe a combination. I Field guides can be very important I th and very helpful, I think. Um, is I think that the the mistake some people make when they start out is being out in the field with their face buried in a in a field guide. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. then they're not observing what they're actually seeing in front of them, and they're you know you have to especially with with birds. I tell beginners all the time like field guides are great, the apps are great, but if you're seeing a bird. For the first time even if you don't know what it is just watch it just watch it till it leaves because that's going to give you more clues to help you what it tell to help you tell what it is 
um, you know, a lot of people will see, oh, there's this gray bird and immediately their face is in a field guide. And when they think they found it, the bird's gone. If they had watched it, they could see maybe it was, you know, bobbing its tail up and down. And now they know it's a Phoebe or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I would say a, a combination like, you know, field guides are definitely good. You should look at them and study them. But for me personally, I would I try to avoid that when I'm out in the field because I want to like actually observe what I'm seeing. Yeah, that, that's a good it, point. Yeah, it definitely feels like a combination. It's like maybe once you have a almost for certain identification of that bird, then go to the field guide. But yeah, until then, try to get the best look at it, observe its behavior, and then you know go from mm-hmm. there. Really. Mm-hmm. And how did you start out, Tony? Was it recently, or how long? Tell us a bit about your journey, kind of getting into birding. So I grew up out here in Ohio, and I was always like kind of in nature growing up as a kid. And then as I got older, my high school friends weren't really into birding so or nature in general. So I kind of wasn't into nature anymore for a while. And then many, many years later, I was in New York City. I had gone to art school, and I, I needed a job, a second job. I was working a retail job and then needed the second job. And so I started as a tour guide in the city and then that was seasonal. And eventually I started working in central park and I kind of re fell in love with nature again. And they used to do these, um, bird walks that were co-led by, uh, New York city Audubon. And I just happened to be scheduled to work those and I didn't realize how many species of bird there actually were in our area in northern you know northeastern United States and that following that was in in fall of 2014 so the following year I decided all right I'm going to start an e-bird and I'm going to see how many birds I could find in Central Park in one year and now it's 2022 and I'm still birding. I know you do uh, a great amount of photography. You post on your Instagram quite often. When did that kind of pick up? Was that right away or did was that later on? It was kind of right away. I think having gone to art school, I kind of had an eye for composition kind of naturally. Um, my medium was always drawing and I, I'm trying to get back into drawing more. Uh, I haven't really drawn too much recently, but I, I don't know. I kind of always had that eye and I would see photographers out there in Central Park and I knew I couldn't just carry around a camera while I was at work because it was kind of stretching it that I just carried around binoculars and kind of birded most of my shift. Um, (laughs) So I knew I couldn't quite push it. Um, I also wasn't sure I wanted to make that financial investment yet so i bought a um attachment for my phone that would attach my phone to my binoculars and i would take bird photos that way and it was not the easiest thing to do (laughs) um but the attachment at least like lined up the camera to the to the binoculars um and i was getting some good pictures and i was like these would look really good if i had an actual camera uh, so eventually I bit the bullet and 
bought what I could afford at that time, which was a used, refurbished Canon, I don't even remember what it was, a T3, I think, um, and the biggest lens I could afford, which was a, uh, it was a Tamron lens, I don't remember which, it was, it was the big one, that they don't make it anyway, I think the 200 to 500 millimeter, and I uh, started taking photos of everything I saw and kind of learning how to be a photographer. Like, like I said, I, I, I could frame a photo. I could take a good photo, but the, I didn't know what any of the numbers on the camera meant. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. So I had to kind of teach myself. I had a friend that had a camera, so she kind of told me a little bit of that stuff. And I just started playing around with it until I started getting pictures that looked good. And that's kind of where I'm at now. I've upgraded my camera now, but that's uh, kind of how I got here. That's awesome. That's yeah. Great. And then um, on kind of your birding outings, do you always bring your camera or is it kind of a part-time thing with that? I almost always bring my camera when I'm birding. Um, I don't necessarily need in my head. I don't necessarily need like an amazing photo of every bird I'm seeing, but I, I'd like to try to get at least a decent photo of every bird, every species I've ever seen. Um, but sometimes I'm out there and, you know, there's a song sparrow and I've taken the, you know, 200,000 pictures of a song sparrow, but I don't know. It's the way it's sitting and the way the light's hitting. I'm like, that would make a good picture. I'm just going to take a picture of it. So I have a lot, I have a lot of song sparrow pictures and a lot of robin pictures, um, a lot of catbird pictures, a lot of a lot of pictures of birds that are very common. But um, every now and then I don't bring my camera, and I enjoy that because now I'm more focused on just birding and less focused on what can I get a picture of. Um, mm -hmm. But even when I bring my camera, sometimes I bring my camera and bird like in the middle of summer and there's no birds around. Um, but anything I see that just kind of strikes me, I'll just pull out the camera and take a picture of it. Yeah, that, that's a good way to go about it. Um, I was going to ask actually about your, your art background. Like you mentioned about composition kind of playing a factor and you pick up the camera. Uh, was there any other like techniques or stuff that you took from uh, the art you know, background and applied, I guess, to the photography? Um, I don't know. I think I've, I've always been good at like drawing. I've been good at art since I was a kid. So I think a lot of that kind of just came naturally to me. Um, I think I kind of just naturally had an eye for composition, but also for like color and how different colors relate to each other. Um, I can see like subtle variations in color easier than I know some people can't see like, you know, you show them 14 shades of blue and they say it's all the same blue, but I can see all 14 <laughs> shades of blue, um, which I think helps too, because you just kind of understand like, this is a good composition, but it might be better if, you know, yeah, I came back at a different time of day or a different time of year even. Um, but yeah, a lot of that was just kind of 
I don't know, it just kind of came naturally to me, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Like some people, it takes probably even years to really, you know, hone their eye and see things out, you know, out in the landscape, out in the woods, you know, when birds are moving around, of course, but you know, it's having that eye, I guess, as cliche as it is, uh, for getting the right image or at least the right sighting of the bird too. Yeah. And I like to take pictures of birds. I like to take messy pictures of birds. Um, I know some people want that, like, field guide look where all you're seeing is the bird and they'll even like Photoshop branches out of the, out of the frame. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me personally, I would rather have a bunch of branches in the frame because that is showing the bird within its habitat where it's like the whole thing is the star of the photo. It's not just about a clear shot of the bird. Um, don't get me wrong. I love, I love taking a nice clear shot of a bird. Um, but I also like taking weird shots and like, give me a picture of a bird peeking through where you could just see like its face peeking through the, the brush. Or I have a, a series of photos I take of just the rear ends of birds, bird butt. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think it's actually super cool because Let's be honest, everybody has those pictures, but most people, I mean, even including myself, I'll just, I'm kind of trained to just delete them without even looking. You know, there's, there's interesting, you know, feathers and whatnot. So I I think it's awesome. Yeah. Like I, I like to like see, I like to take photos of birds and and animals in general being themselves. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I like, I like seeing that and them interacting with their environment. Um, you know, like if, if I've never seen a Connecticut warbler, so if I went out tomorrow and there was one there, I would like a clear shot of it just to have one. But so I'm not like avoiding those uh, field guide shots, but I, I just like taking photos of how things are and not mm-hmm. like touching them up and making them quote unquote perfect. Yeah, you're, you're like embracing the almost messy aspect of nature because, you know, in a fully leafed out canopy in the woods or something, it's like, it's definitely messy. So like, why not embrace that aspect of it and just keep the images looking the same too? Yeah, exactly. Do you set out to take those bird butt shots or is it just kind of like um, a mistake, I guess, or something like that? No, I didn't at first. I, I got a couple and I was like, oh, this is actually really in focus and sharp and this is a good photo it's just a photo of its butt. And then I thought I should just take all these photos of bird butts. So <laughs> now if uh, the uh, opportunity presents itself, I try to take um, bird butt photos if I can. I mean, it's a great series. And yeah, like Henry said, it's like, we've pretty much all taken them. I think, you know, whether you probably want to or not, but it's like, I'm guilty of it too, of trashing them. But you know, it's, it's really cool that you're doing that. It's really I guess refreshing if that's the right way to put it, you know, cause it is different, yeah. but it is realistic because a lot of them have their backs turned to you as well. Yeah. Every now and then that's the only look you're getting at. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I came across a horned lark on the beach last um, fall and I didn't want to get close enough to scare it off, but I was behind it. So I was like, well, here's a bird butt shot. I just got down on the sand and took a picture of it. Right. It's like the best shot you're going to get possibly even too. So it's like, yeah, I guess it's better than nothing in some ways. It turned out pretty good too. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, I have an idea for your next series. It should be the sharpest sticks ever because we all, you know, we, that, we take our it. pictures and, and we have sticks with nothing on it. <laughs> that's your next series. <laughs> I have a few of those. Nice. I also have a few, um, uh, a few photos of the sticks that are in perfect focus, but the bird's blurry behind it. Oh, oh isn't that the worst? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I went out to Arizona this past March, and the only picture of a phenopepla I got was a blurry one with a perfectly focused branch in front of it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Oh well. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I mean, maybe someday software will be good enough to get rid of that, but I don't know. It's far in the future, it seems. Oh, completely shift the focus. Yeah, yeah, we can dream though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Still, that, that's pretty great. And yeah, it's like once again, deleting those is probably what most people do, because <laughs> it's like, what's the point? Yeah, I also have a bunch of photos that are just like half the bird as it's flying out of frame. So. Maybe I can mm. use those too. Yeah. I, so, I, do you delete any photos, or do you keep everything? I delete some photos. I delete some things that are just I know they're they're just they ended up not framed well or not focused well. But um, typically, what I do is I take a ton of photos, as I'm sure we all do, and then you know, out of a thousand, three are good, and. Um, I I keep almost every photo on my SD card. I only really transfer and back up the ones I want to keep and like post or keep for myself. Um, so those are the only ones backed up on my hard drive. But pretty much every other photo I take is on an SD card somewhere. Mm-hmm. Do you like catalog those at all? Like on a computer, do you have like folders separated by species or family or like What's like your process with that? Your like catalog, I guess. I do now. Um, I had so many and I would occasionally need a photo. Like if I'm at work and I'm writing a blog for our website or something and I'm like, oh, I need a photo of whatever species and I know I have a good one and I couldn't find it. So I finally went through, um, I think about a year ago and it took few weeks but i finally have now i have a folder for every family and then within that those folders i have the species um awesome every picture i have of those species in those folders and i have Isn't the best it's one. a lot of work but yeah yeah in the long run it pays it's off a lot of work to get it going but as long as i keep up with it it's not so bad Mm-hmm. It's also another one of those things where it's like as you grow up with your catalog and just building up the photography itself, it's like you make that kind of mend itself to it. So like you might start with just a like a songbirds folder and then it expands from there and you have like other kinds of, uh, I don't know, just different families like gross beaks or larks or just whatever it may be. And, you know, it just goes from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I have some non bird photo folders as well. They're not as full as the bird ones, but <laughs> well, what are they? Um, I have probably the most I have are reptiles, um, various turtles and frogs and snakes and stuff that I see out in the wild, um, and some mammals. I mean, 
there's squirrels and chipmunks everywhere, but sometimes the way they're sitting on a log is uh, a good photo. So you can take a picture of them or, or deer uh, in Ohio. There's a million deer everywhere, but sometimes you, you're walking and you see a deer and the way it's, you like only see its face because it's peeking up over a hill or something like that. And you just want to take the pictures. So. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, those deer and squirrels. I have some some wildflowers and uh, insect photos, but those I have I usually take those with my phone because um, I only have the big zoom lens, and to take a picture of a butterfly, I'd have to be like thirty feet away from it. <laughs> oh wow! Unless you approach slowly, yeah, it's it's definitely tough. They they're probably more skittish than most birds, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. They that get like a diverse portfolio though of different species and stuff they see out in nature too. Yeah, whenever I'm out and I I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good photo. I'm going to take this photo. Just mm-hmm. it just hits. You never know when it's going to when you're going to be uh, mm-hmm. struck by that. Yeah, that's that's great for sure. Um, I I do have a, a question about editing because I I know you mentioned you you don't do a lot in post production, but will you? Um, with your folders, will you have that in an editor, or is it just just an import process, basically? Uh, I do edit them slightly. I'm really only adjusting light, um, and I try to edit as minimally as I can because I want them to look natural. I don't want mm-hmm. them to look like oversaturated or anything. But sometimes, you know, the sun's coming in and out of the clouds all the time and, and you don't change your settings every time that you should and then there's a bird and you gotta take the picture so sometimes you have to darken it or brighten it up or whatever you need to do to make it a decent photo um mm-hmm. but i try to avoid that if possible <laughs> um oh yeah for sure so i i i run everything through lightroom and just adjusts Basically, I'm basically just adjusting like light and exposure um, if I didn't have the right settings or whatever it is, I might bump up the saturation just a touch, but I don't ever want it to look like I edited it. Mm-hmm. Right. And you don't really need to do much either. I mean, that sounds to me like very reasonable edits, like it's very minimal, just kind of like basic adjustments, really. It's not like heavy handed composites, obviously. That's probably probably not your style, of course, but you know, it's, it's stuff that just kind of improves the photo marginally, but yeah. doesn't dramatically yeah, every alter now and then, The only, every now and then I'll get like a, a good photo, like at sunrise or sunset, and it's like a silhouette but maybe I want it to be more of a silhouette. Like you can kind of still see the field marks. So I might like mess around with that a little bit, um, make it a little more artsy or maybe change it to black and white or something. But yeah, for the most part, I, I'm not really doing much to my photos. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've noticed with silhouettes too is with saturation. You, you can go a little crazy, like just yeah. a little bit. Cause there's really, cause you don't see the actual field marks, like you said, so you can, there's no you can't tell that it's like unnatural colors on the bird so right yeah you can you can bump it up a little bit yeah it's, that's a great point mm-hmm. um so talk a little bit about lighting so you mentioned the silhouette um what are some of the other types of uh light you tend to go for like what kind of weather and what kind of light um i 
I know a lot of people like when it's kind of overcast. I don't really like when it's overcast personally. Um, but I also don't like the harsh sunlight if it's like, you know, two in the afternoon and it's sunny and there's no clouds. Because that can just kind of wash everything out too. So I don't know. It's it's a delicate balance. Mm -hmm. Um it also depends where I'm at, too, because if it's really sunny out, but I'm deep in the forest, then that's sort of this green, um, greenish yellow filter over everything, which can be kind of cool. Um, but if it's cloudy out and I'm in the forest now, it's like almost too dark for anything. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't really I kind of just when I have the time and want to go birding i just kind of deal with whatever light i'm given um i don't avoid going birding or taking my camera out in certain light um i just kind of hope for the best and adjust as needed and try to get the best mm -hmm. photo i can with whatever light i'm given but i think that also helps have a more rounded um catalog of photos too because you don't just have photos in certain lights, you know, mm -hmm. you're not always going to see the bird from a favorable angle. So you're going to get a lot of bird butts, but you're also not going to always be out in perfect weather. So I think having some of those less perfect lighting situations can be, can be fun sometimes and frustrating, mm -hmm. but yeah, <laughs> that's true. But you know, it's, it's also nice because not every day, but like there's been a lot of days where like I'd be out in the field and it's, the light and the weather changes throughout the day. Like it could start out cloudy, you know, turn out sunny or vice versa. So that kind of helps too. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe uh, if you could tell us more about your involvement uh, with Lake Metro Parks and how you became a naturalist or more. So I moved back home in 2019, um, sort of help out my parents and stuff as they're getting a little bit older. And I, had been working, like I said, I worked uh, for Central Park doing programming and things like that. I lived in St. Louis for about a year, uh, worked for the National Park Service at the Gateway Arch for one for a summer. So I definitely wanted to stay in the park um, and programming field and they were hiring. So I said, well, that's perfect. I live in the county. I know where the park is. I know where all the parks are. Um, and was fortunate enough to get the position. And then uh, last summer, a full-time position opened up, which uh, I was fortunate enough to get that as well. So uh, it's it's great. You know, I love my job. I love being able to go out there and program and create programs about all sorts of things, um, not just birding related. Um, but, you know, this coming week, I have a nocturnal uh, animals hike. So I have a, a hike at night where we're going to hopefully find some critters out and about after dark. Um, so it's, it's cool. Cause it's, uh, I'm, I've always been very curious by nature. So I always love learning new things and learning about different animals and different plants that maybe I didn't know a whole lot about. So it's the perfect job for that. Cause then I get to tell everybody everything I've learned. Awesome. Are you actually located on site of the Metro Park? Like, do you get to explore that daily, or is it more of an indoor kind of job with the programming and everything? 
so every I'm based out of the nature center. Um, so that's where my desk is. That's where my office is, is in the nature center. Most of the programming I do is in the same park where the nature center is. Um, but I do have uh, programming in other parks as well. Um, awesome. But most of the time I'm in that, just that one park. And when you say programming, is it you doing the programs or is it you bringing in other people and scheduling them? Like what's the process there? No, I'm doing, I'm doing the program. So a lot of them awesome. are programs that we've done for a while that have existed before I, I started working there. And others are programs that I've developed um, for us. So I facilitate the programs. I lead the hikes. I tell everybody about everything and uh, get to take people down in our gorge and do some creek walks, or I get to go on a bird walk and find however many species we could find. Or, um, you know, I have a, a program where I literally put on a detective's hat and uh, lead some kids around the forest to try to solve uh, some mysteries, the mysteries of nature. So it's a wide variety of, of topics and of um, public and age groups and things like that. So it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, that's a great, sounds like a really fun job where you get to plan that out and be in nature, of course, too. Yeah. Is there any favorite like programs that you've led before? Oh, I don't know if I have a favorite. Um, I do like doing the mystery one just because that one was completely created by me and it's a, a brand new program. We've only done it twice so far and we have it scheduled through the rest of the year. So uh, it's, it's difficult to come up with a mystery and um, you know, I, if, if any of the kids out are listening out there, I'm not actually planting evidence, but I'm planting evidence in the, in the woods. So they can find it and try to solve the mysteries. Um, so that's that's a lot of fun too. And I don't I try to make it as real as possible, but also kind of not real and fun. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, do you you want to give an example of one of the mysteries? <laughs> so this past week I did one. It was the case of the egg salient crime, and the mystery was that there were numerous nests being raided or disturbed and we needed to find out who did it. And then there were clues as to where these, these different um, nests were. So the kids had to decipher where to look for the clues. And once they deciphered that, we went out into the woods and they found a robin's nest that had fallen from the tree and um, so they could deduce that whatever it was, was able to climb a tree. And then we found um, a turtle nest that had been raided. Um, the hole was in the ground. There were eggshells in there. And no turtles anymore. And then they found a chipmunk hole that seemed to have some kind of track leading out of the hole. And all along the way, they were also finding these cards with these weird symbols on them. So then we go back inside and we go through all the evidence. And so they had kind of figured out it was either a raccoon or a snake. 
And then I magically found these decoders that were able to let them decode all those symbols they found. And once they decoded the symbols, they had to unscramble the letters and they found out that the culprit was a gray rat snake. Oh, wow. That's yeah, that's awesome. Wow. What a a cool way to get young people into nature. That's that's really cool. It's a lot of fun. How long did it take them to find out the answer? Um, well, it was an hour and a half program and it took them about an hour and 20 minutes. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It was good. It worked out. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, how often are you like birding while at work or is that like, like part of the job maybe, or is it a lot of like you're birding excursions just on your own, like outside of work, I guess. Um, I don't bird at work as much as I did when I worked in Central Park. Um, <laughs> That's true. But I am able to, you know, every, I mean, whenever time allows, I can just go take a little walk around the park with my binoculars and do some birding. Or sometimes on my lunch break, I'll do that instead of sitting at my desk and having lunch. So I still try to get out there. We have... um we have a board that we have up outside the nature center that we keep tabs of what birds are seen in the park. So um, that's always like a reason I can give for going out and birding. Like, well, I have to update the the board. (laughs) That's one of the best parts of nature centers is like seeing that checklist of like the species we found today and, you know, just things like that are really helpful. I think the visitors too. Yeah. It's been a good May. I'm actually out of room. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. What have been some of the highlights then? Um, so the, the board that we put up, we I designed a whole new one because we had just like a white board up. But I designed a whole new one that has like the species on magnets so we can just easily throw them up. It's like a magnetic board. Um, unfortunately, we, we consulted eBird. Uh, when we came up with what species we were going to put on the magnets and there have been some species that have shown up that we don't have magnets for because they're not common enough in our park. Um, not necessarily uncommon birds, but we had a sandpiper last week and the park has like a couple of ponds and is mostly field and um, a forest. So it's not really spotted sandpiper habitat, but we had one. Uh, so that was pretty cool. I'm not sure if one had ever has ever actually been seen in that park, um, but they're a common enough bird. But there's there's a couple of other birds that have shown up that are less common in um, northeast Ohio, like uh, yellow-throated warbler, which don't quite make it up this far all that often that we've had in the park, but haven't been able to put on our board because we just didn't have the the magnet made for it, but. Um, there could be some cool, some cool stuff in that park. Um, we had a, uh, black-billed cuckoo last week. Um, I don't know if any, if one of those has ever been seen in our park. So, um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's cool with, you know, especially with birding in particular is like every year is different. Like, you know, like those species are just kind of ebb and flow with migrations and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's always something new to see too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What are some like your favorite locations in general or like in Northeast Ohio that you'd recommend? Um, uh, Chagrin River Park is a park that's um, kind of close to me. It 
it's deceivingly close to Lake Erie. It doesn't seem like it's close to Lake Erie, but it's really only a couple of miles away. Um, so because of that, it actually gets quite a bit of um, quite a bit of birds during migration, and it's right along a river, so you get like kingfishers and other water birds, and then there's also a big field which is great in the springtime for like snipe or meadowlarks, but there's also some wetlands that bitterns often show up at, but then there's a forest where you can get lots of different kinds of like flycatchers and vireos and tanagers and warblers. So it's, it's got a lot of different types of habitat. Um, uh, headlands, Dunes State Nature Preserve, which is right on Lake Erie, is a good spot. Um, that can get just completely overrun with birds during migration. I would think, I would say the only thing um, with that site is the birds don't tend to stick around too long there. Um, I think because the habitat is really kind of just scrubby habitat. There's not like a lot of forest so I think a lot of them kind of, they fly over the lake, they see the park, they land, they recharge, and then they kind of move on pretty quickly. Um, and there's a lot of other really good spots. There's another park that's also right along the lake, um, Lake Erie Bluffs, which has a big field, which you can get shrike in during the winter time, um, but also a forest nearby. Um, where you can get lots of different kinds of warblers and stuff. So it's a pretty pretty varied habitat, and being right along the lake makes it kind of a really good birding spot because the birds are either holding up along the lake before they fly over the lake during spring migration, or they're landing here after they've flown over the lake during fall migration when they're heading south. So you get a lot of birds that they don't always stick around long, but you can get quite a lot of birds kind of just showing up right along the lake to kind of recharge. Do you find that in fall they're a little more exhausted because they've just done that long flight? More sedentary? I think so. Um, some of them anyway. I, I'm one of the few birders that actually kind of prefers fall migration to spring migration. Because spring migration is great, but it's like a few weeks, really, for peak spring migration. And then it's gone. And if you don't get out, you miss everything. Um, but fall migration kind of just drags on from, like, September through November. So you have plenty of time to see things. <laughs> um, although the birds aren't are often not quite as brightly colored, um, you have things kind of come in stages during fall you know you have your shorebirds but then once that kind of peaks you know you have songbirds coming in and you have your sparrows coming in and then your ducks come in later so i don't know i kind of like fall migration yeah it's... yeah especially for like you know more you know people like us who can't shoot nonstop, you know jobs and school and whatnot you know you just you can't you can't shoot every day, so for sure falls definitely good with that spread out time frame. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. It's a little more relaxed, I guess, but you know, it is because it's drawn out, which helps out too. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, shifting gears here a little bit, um, you also have a merch line that features like birds on t-shirts. Uh, could you tell us more about the inspiration behind those? I do. So, um, as I mentioned, I have an art background, so I went to art school. Um, it was mostly for drawing comics and things like that. Um, and I was just kind of fooling around drawing, drawing birds. Actually, when I worked at Central Park, when I was bored, I would draw them and I was like, I didn't have like colored pencils or anything. So I was taking highlighter and trying to draw like birds as minimally as possible with using just like blocks of color. And I was like, this is kind of cool. I should expand on this. And then I found uh, a website called T public where artists can kind of upload all their own stuff and um, sell it. And you can get it on t-shirts or as posters or on a, a notebook or a phone case or, you know, whatever it is. So I started doing that and I started, uh, I have a few different series on there of my artwork. I have, um, I have just like birds, like here's a shirt with a scrub J on it, or here's a shirt with a, uh, a warbler. I think I have a, a prairie warbler on one. And then I have a shirt that's my collective noun shirt. Um, Cause there's a lot of birds that have some strange collective nouns. So I have, I think the most popular one is a confusion of warblers. So a group of warblers <laughs> is called a confusion. Probably to no surprise of anyone. Is that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a few of those. And then the one I've, I've really kind of been focusing on lately is my, um, Warhol inspired birds where I have um, kind of like a, an Andy Warhol photo or a piece where there's like multiple birds either of the same species with just different subspecies or sometimes it's of the same um, genus with all the different species birds that look similar to each other um, just in grids basically the same drawing just colored slightly different I have one that is just um, chickadees, all the different chickadees. Um, I have one, actually I have one that's grackles, all the different species and subspecies of grackles. I have one for scrub jays and one for um, box sparrows. Um, so that's one of my favorites. And I actually have one, I, I have a, Another series that features some of the extinct birds, ivy-billed woodpecker and the Labrador duck, um, and a couple of others. So that's awesome. my bird. That's awesome. So you design yeah. all those yourself? I do, yeah. Uh, a awesome. lot of them, I try to, if, if, you know, sometimes I need photo reference, so I try to use my own photos. Sometimes I, it's a bird I want to draw that I've never actually seen or photographed, but uh, I don't like trace anything or anything like that i just that's really cool put my drawing skills to use and then uh digitally color them and um yeah so you're you're drawing that by hand and then scanning it in or do you you have like yeah, a so tablet or i i have a tablet but it's not a tablet that you can draw on and see what you're drawing like i have to draw on it and the cursors on the screen so it's really hard to draw that way for me i haven't tra trained my brain to do that so i draw it on paper and then i scan it in and then i go over the 
drawing. That's really awesome. cool. Yeah, using your photos as like a point of reference to make those, you know, that's really, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. When can we see maybe a Bird Butts uh, t-shirt series? I don't know. You know, I did a calendar last year. I didn't, I kind of did it last minute, so I didn't really promote it much because I was like, oh, it's January. I should do a calendar. Um, so I'm trying to do a calendar uh, and I'll do another Bird Butts calendar this year. Um, <laughs> but I should, should put some on a, on a shirt. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Could be a lucrative venture. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a great conversation, Tony. Um, so where's the best pe uh, place that people can go and uh, connect with you and see more of your work? Um, Instagram. I'm not really on any other social media. Um, my Instagram is feathered focus. And um, I do have a TikTok, but I don't like really post on there. So uh, it's really going to be feathered focused. I have, I've never been big on Twitter and I am not on Facebook. So it's, it's Instagram or nothing. <laughs> Got it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on tonight. This has been really enjoyable. We appreciate well, thanks it. Thanks for having me guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Tony. Thank you so much for watching the Owl Outdoors Photography Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the video version on YouTube as well. You can subscribe down below and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you.